On the Empire Podcast this week, we dare to enter the cabin in the woods and talk to its director, Drew Goddard. We have a chat with Mike Newell about an all-time great We Sink Peter Berg's Battleship. And we won't do any more gags about swearing because of bleeping technical difficulties. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast called The Empire Podcast. Now, if you know of any others, please do let us know, and we'll send around the boys to sort them out. This week, I've had four hours sleep, <laughs> so not in the whole week, but just overnight. So I'm glad that I'm backed up by a posse of top movie brains, starting with the man who gets antsy if he doesn't reunite the cast of a major movie every five minutes. It's Nick Dissembling. How are you, Nick? Hey Chris, uh, I'm good. I'm working on my Cabin in the Woods reunion. Oh, fantastic! Uh, but the cabin is is playing hard to get. The woods are in, but the cabin's not. The woods are locked in. The cabin hasn't signed on yet. I'm good. Uh, cool, excellent. Uh, let me have the Jason Statham look-alike, but not sound-alike, which basically means that he's bald with stubble. That is uh, James Dyer. How are you, Jimbo? I'm good, thank you, Chris. Excellent, excellent. Uh, and last but not least, we have the buried arms cache of movie geekery. That is Helen O'Hara. How are you? I'm very well, but I would like to make clear to any security agencies that might be listening, I don't, in fact, have a cache of buried arms. I know I'm That's Northern true. Irish, but it doesn't yeah. necessarily follow. That's a Northern inside joke, I think, <laughs> there. Uh, now, all week, you've been gently bombarding us with nice tweets, Facebook messages that we'd be able to read if Timeline wasn't such an abomination, and emails. So let's read out some of the best, shall we? And by best, I don't mean the ones that offer to increase the size of our podcast. Uh, at... SciTuck1977 asks, Why haven't cinemas offered us Marvel Day? Back-to-back IMAX showings of all movies climaxing mm, with Assemble. Interesting. Now this is about rights, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Helen. <laughs> I, I thought that the Prince Charles Cinema here in London was doing that. Was it? But not climbing them but, yeah. together. But not okay. IMAX. Okay, but not IMAX. Okay, but uh, presumably because Disney owned the Avengers, but uh, Paramount own all other movies. So I imagine that those two studios... All other movies. Wouldn't be... All other movies. All other uh, Marvel movies. So they wouldn't be too interested in in joining forces, like the Avengers, I guess. Which is a shame, because it's so fun when they all join join forces in the Avengers. If only studios were like the Avengers themselves. Absolutely. Studios assemble. Studios assemble. This should be our next project. Marvel's studios assemble. At... Y2Neil.com, who, if you remember, people who were at MovieCon 3, I think it was, he insulted Chloe Moretz on stage. Accidentally, but nevertheless, he insulted her. And he's at it again. He says, tell, at Chloe G. Moretz, if she destroys Carrie, like, let the right one in, I'll be gunning for her. Now, is that an actual death threat? <laughs> I'm just wondering. I think she can take care of herself, though. Yeah, and she chop his leg off. Yeah, she's hit girl, for God's yeah, sake. Well, ha- having met both of them at various movie cons, you know, I, I, no, no disrespect, Neil, but I would back <laughs> Carrie against you. She is, after all, hit girl and uh, and a vampire to boot. Carrie, you'd back Carrie. She's Carrie, immersed herself in the role so much. Sorry, Chloe, she has backed, yes, she's yeah. a method actress. Method actress. I hear she's moving things with her mind now. She'll destroy you with her telekinetic knives. And also, come on, she's a fantastic actress. And let the right one in they let me in that had really nothing to do with her she was very very good in that film I thought the film was pretty good destroys the film come on Neil come on you can do better than that come on Um, Neil Neil. honestly Uh, at JFG in digital 3D otherwise known as Jack Gregson otherwise known as my creepy stalker says I watched all four diehards this week from best to worst James this is going to upset you he lists him best diehard 2 alright second best diehard with a vengeance Third best Die Hard movie, Die Hard. Fourth best Die Hard movie, Die Hard 4.0. He says, am I wrong? (laughs) James. If it were possible to trust our beeping technology, I think you know where I'd be going. (laughs) 
Yes, Jack, you are immensely wrong. Die Hard is the uh, arguably the greatest, uh, I'm going to say, English-language action movie of all time, because I love Hard Boiled and also The Raid. Uh, but yes, come on. It's it's so much better than the but other sequels. Die Hard 2 has something the other Die Hard Ladies and gentlemen. Die Hard 2 has something the other films doesn't have, which is Marv the Janitor. It does. It uh, does include it. That is certainly something that and the Robert other films Patrick. don't have. First one sorely missing in Janitors. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I do. I'm something of a diehard to apologist. I think it gets I a bad rap. It, yeah. But to say it's better than one, and to say that Die Hard with a Vengeance is also better than one, is mm-hmm. with the greatest of respect, Jack, completely cracked. Absolutely. Die Hard 2 also has a bit where the guy who played Meat in Porky's uh, gets stabbed in the eye with an icicle. Uh, so that's pretty good. It also but has a naked William Sadler. It does have a naked William Sadler. Yeah. Uh, which <laughs> is obviously what I look for in a Die Hard film. <laughs> I have some potentially interesting Die Hard trivia. Die Hard 3 was originally going to be set on a boat. Uh, because the original idea was that the, the diehards were going to be modelled on a different disaster film each time. Okay. So the first one was the Towering Inferno, the second one... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was derailed by airport, Speed 2, wasn't it? And the third one, mm-hmm. Poseidon Adventure, and that didn't happen. But Holy cow. Because mm. of Speed 2. Yes. Mm. Wow, where would they have gone after that? But hang on, Die Hard 3 was derailed because of Speed 2. No, Die Hard 3 was not derailed because of Speed 2, the boat idea. The boat idea was derailed because of Speed 2. It was under siege. Die Hard... Die Hard 3 came out two years before Speed 2 well it turns out it was I'm under siege <laughs> I don't know if anyone noticed that but I uh, totally made that up true true you did but you know what you were doing well I nearly we pulled it off it. <laughs> so you actually uh, undid it with those fact yeah. things yeah you asked for miracles and I gave you facts <laughs> yes. so there you go uh, Jack you were very very I mean, wrong uh, I believe you're doing work experience at Empire soon if you come in with that sort of opinion sir we'll drum you out of the office in next to no time Get it sorted. We're just telling people off this week. Uh, okay. <laughs> At Ryan Pothecary says, I saw Pirates this week. I presume he means Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists and not Pirates of the Caribbean 4, which is terrible. He says, it's classic and wasted on kids. What kids' films do you think are too good for the young? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Should, should we be denying kids good films? Is no, that of course not. Yes. Way to go? Yeah. Yeah. I think we all know the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> Human so Centipede, Terminator, is that, that sort of no, thing, okay, right? okay, but should we be denying them good kids films Oh, good well? kids that, films. That just seems a little bit harsh. Okay. Yeah, you know. Um, having said that, I mean, I don't know, the Pixars, the Miyazakis, you know, these are not kids films actually aimed at kids. They're kids mm. films aimed at everybody. I remember uh, Andrew Stanton when he appeared on Mark Lawson's front row on Radio 4. Um, he got quite spiky when Mark Lawson uh, described uh, Pixar movies as kids films. And he's, he's like, right. I don't make kids films. I make films for people. And if they happen to be under two foot tall and three years old, then okay. He didn't say that bit, but anyway. Yeah, I yeah. think that's the message of Pixar. And I think that's the message actually of most successful kids films. The ones that stay with you are the ones that work because they're great films and great stories, not because, you know, they're kids movies. I mean, you mm. know, when I was seven, I was very excited about the My Little Pony movie, but that doesn't mean it's a great kids film, actually. Absolutely. I mean, uh, George Lucas always said that he intended Star Wars, episode four, as a kids' film, but it wasn't as overtly made for kids, I think, as the prequel. Certainly, Phantom Menace, mm. which is very, very much aimed at a young kids. Well, we said this when we came out of the three D screening, didn't we? That it, it's quite clearly skews younger mm. than the original trilogy, but noticeably so. I mean, the Greg Proops Podrace character, being case in point, you know, Jar Jar, the uh, the commentator, yeah, yeah, Jar Jar, they, falling they, over and doo doo, and it's it's very childish. Whereas A New Hope begins with Darth Vader crushing someone's larynx, mm. so not not quite so. Uh, not quite, yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely friendly. And it's interesting once you watch uh, Phantom Menace uh, with a small child. <laughs> Hopefully one that's related to you and not one you've just plucked <laughs> off the street. Um, I watched it with my, my young uh, nephew a few years ago and he absolutely loved Jar Jar. 
Uh, but, you know, I soon drummed it out of him. Uh, I told him all this week. I'm telling everyone all this week. I'm very angry if only had four hours sleep. How old? Um, okay. Um, oh sorry. Tamar Molnar, who's from Hungary, which means that the podcast truly is international, asks, what's your favourite cheesy action movie one-liner? James, mm. you're good in this. <laughs> I'm going to put in I'm, I'm going to butt in before James no, takes it with one like, from Commando oh, okay. no. yeah, I knew he was going to do it so I'm going to just jump okay, in let on. off some steam Bennett let off some steam Bennett and I'm trying to remember going back to Die Hard 2 uh, no, no, where, where your John Vernon Mc Wells is better than your Schwarzenegger do a Vernon Wells line well, no hang on hang on in, in Die Hard 2 when John McClane kills a guy with an icicle does he have a one line the same guy meat it's from yeah, Porky's yeah, the guy I was talking about god he doesn't. I don't think he says anything like "ice to see you" or anything. No problem. Or, yeah, no problem. Or uh, that guy's got an icicle in his eye. It's just, <laughs> which, it's which just pick an Arnie line, isn't it? Really? Yeah. It, yeah. Arnie has all. Remember, the best Sully, when I said I would kill you last, I lied. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, every line in Commander. <laughs> this is just yes. amazing. I eat green berries for, for breakfast, and I'm very hungry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my personal favourite, and Ali, <laughs> get ready with the beeping machine, is from Blade. Uh, at the end of Blade <laughs> oh, yes. not yeah. to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen Blade and if you haven't seen Blade then stop listening to the podcast see Blade come back and start again at this exact point we'll wait you back? okay Grant so you've now seen Blade and you know that at the end Wesley Snipes kicks a needle into Stephen Dorff's body and kills him essentially and dispatches him with the line some f***ers are always trying to ice skate uphill which is amazing I love it. And I love the fact that Stephen Dorff, when he dies, must be clearly thinking, what? <laughs> I've never tried to do this in my life. What? That's... What, what does he mean? <laughs> it's just mental. Some <laughs> are always trying to play Scrabble in the dark. It's quite difficult. Um, Helen, you got one? Um, I just like anything from Predator. It's not even necessarily the one-liners. <laughs> just, just everything, you know. Uh, I love cheesy action movie one-liners. Helen, last week you went in a rant about James Bond, but you have to admit, the guy is the king of cool, cheesy action movie one-liners. No, I don't. No, you have to. No, I don't. I've written it down. Well, I'm not going to. Okay, then. Uh, as ever, should you wish to get in touch with us and maybe, just maybe, have your message read out in air and be told off by us, uh, then it couldn't be simpler. Twitter us using the hashtag EmpirePodcast, or you could email us at podcast at EmpireOnline.com. You could also try to use the power of your mind, if you're so disposed. Uh, coming up, we'll trawl through the week's movie news, but first, it's time for another listener-created jingle. This week, we once again welcome the soothing sounds of our old chum, Microfarad Melody Eel, who's come up with this utterly demented offering called Love Theme from Battleship. If you wonder what Battleship is, it's a long story. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh I see, he's mixed in the battle bit. Oh no! Poor old Battleship. He's been sunk. We hardly knew you. <laughs> um, some battleships are always trying to play Scrabble in the dark um, Okay, so if you think you can stop the tyranny of Microfarad's jingles Then it's up to you, the ball is in your court We could get some awful royalty-free music, damn it But we're Empire, therefore we're monarchists And we don't do royalty-free So send us your jingles or stings Helen, Sorry. send us your sting jingles or stings To podcast at EmpireOnline.com She's waving around the Irish passport now It's, it's, it's all kicking <laughs> off uh, as you can tell, put the balaclava down. As you can tell, 
We have no quality threshold whatsoever, so good luck. Okay, on to the week's movie news. Helen, let's start with you. What's setting the movie blood pumping through your celluloid veins? Uh, well, as you know, I'm a huge fan of Angelina Jolie. Uh, so yeah, any news about we are all her are. making a film is good news for me. Um, <laughs> I think she's a goddess. And uh, and she's apparently up for a small role in The Counselor, which is Ridley Scott's new film. Um, Michael Fassbender's already set to star in it. And it's all from a script by Cormac McCarthy. So that's a pretty good His pedigree. first original script. Yes, indeed. He was due to deliver a new manuscript to his publishers and instead delivered a screenplay they had no idea was coming. Wow. You can get away without your Cormac McCarthy, I imagine. I think you can get away with quite a lot when you're Cormac McCarthy. He's kind of earned it. I would love to see what a Cormac McCarthy script looks like because obviously scripts are quite formal Mm. in their formatting. Uh, But he's all over the place. If you've ever read a Cormac McCarthy book, he's all over the place in terms of his punctuation. He doesn't much care for for things like full stops or or commas or, or speech marks. Uh, so it'd be really interesting to see what he does with a script. Is it like 10 pages long of just really dense stuff and you have to kind of wade through it? Or is it formatted like a normal script? Presumably, as a professional writer, he can probably, you know, pull out a formal script if he needs to. Mm. He's got all that in his armour. Yeah, but does he want to? That's the does thing. He? Because clearly he could do it in his novels. On the other hand, though, to. I mean, you know, Hollywood people have read this and presumably, you know, are making it. So it must Maybe they don't understand it and they just think it's brilliant because it's Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> that is possible. Yeah. He could have written anything. It could it's, be a shopping list. It's great. Maybe it is. Okay. Tomatoes coming next summer. <laughs> Followed quickly by Aubergines. Cormac McCarthy's Aubergines. I'd love to see that film. But this is a really exciting film because he could do anything. Uh, clearly, he hasn't gone for a, a teen comedy or a knockabout sex romp. <laughs> which He's, is a shame. <laughs> which like is a shame. He's gone for something it seems to me to have shades of No Country for Old Men. Sounds a bit Breaking Bad-esque, actually. Um, it's about a southern lawyer, I believe, who gets involved in the drug Yeah, business. John Grisham-esque, really. Yeah, but that whole Breaking Bad thing of a guy, yeah. a regular guy, getting sucked into an underworld. I don't know much about it beyond that. But. Nobody does. Um, not much more than that has actually been revealed, and no one has any idea what part Angelina Jolie's up for. Uh, the only thing I would say is that... Um, I think she's best when she's playing a really, really strong character. I mean, I think in recent years, in something like The Good Shepherd, it was actually, it's a terrific performance. The body language, everything is there. I'd almost entirely forgotten that she was in that film. Exactly, because it's not uh, the right role for her. She was playing basically a sort of slightly milk toast kind of southern belle and it, mm. it doesn't work for her at all and she you know like I say all the body language everything was there it's a really good performance technically speaking it's just you don't buy Angelina Jolie being that passive for a second and so I want to see her doing something quite active in this and hopefully she will I interviewed uh, Ridley Scott a couple of days ago and asked him about this and he didn't say much but he did say that the film is almost all talking he said it's almost Excellent. completely dialogue so don't get your hopes up too much Sorkin-y maybe well not actually in the sense of you know Guns. You know, running around with guns, actually in the sense of being a force to move things forward. Mm. Well, it's really interesting what because I think Prometheus is finished, uh, which mm-hmm. is because it comes out in June. And he's clearly, clearly very, very confident in the film to be moving on to prepping and shooting something while Prometheus is just about to come out. He starts shooting the cancer before Prometheus is released. I know he likes to move quickly, very Clint Eastwood-like mm-hmm. in that way, but yeah, that just shows enormous confidence in the movie. And funnily enough, by way of an interesting segue... Uh, Prometheus does look very, very good, doesn't it, Nick? Because we saw some footage this week. It does. It looks terrific. Um, The trailer was obviously fantastic, and now we've got to see about 12 or 13 minutes worth of it, and it looks stunning. Mm. Visually stunning, and we didn't get to see a huge amount of dialogue, but there were some uh, great lines between Michael Fassbender. He plays a kind of robotic space butler. He's the android (laughs) on on board the ship. Mm. And Charlize Theron, who's the company woman aboard Prometheus. Mm. And it looked like an interesting kind of 
funny relationship. Between I think us. we saw roughly a condensed version of the first 10, 15 minutes of the film. Can you can you talk us through roughly what we saw? We saw a scene uh, set on the Isle of Skye in Scotland, which is near Pace and um, Logan Marshall uh, Green, her colleague. Yeah. Yep, finding uh, the cave painting, and then it cut to the Prometheus and everyone kind of waking up from cryosleep. Yeah, it looked great. Looks fantastic. It does look good. I mean, it was setting up character stuff. What interesting to me, it felt like an alien film. I know Ridley Scott has talked very, very much about this movie sharing DNA with Alien, about there being a direct link. I wonder what that could be. But there are little Easter eggs studded all the way through it. Um, I wrote a blog about it on the Empire website. If you don't want to read and you just want to hear some stuff, there. Uh, look away now. Here, turn your ears away now, because uh, there are some spoilers. There's a the planet on which they land is called LV two two three. I think I spotted, mm-hmm. which is interesting because obviously the planet in which Alien and Aliens takes place uh, 4.26 absolutely so at some point they have to get from that planet to this planet you would assume uh, there are also other little easter eggs in there Guy Pierce, who we long suspected uh, of being in the movie as old Peter Wayland is indeed in the movie as old Peter Wayland but as a hologram interesting Ooh. enough yeah uh, saying that uh, and there's a hollow dog there's a hollow dog which is fantastic and it rolls over and you know, almost wants you to rub its hollow belly which is uh, <laughs> which is interesting uh, the characters are nicely set up, uh, nicely sketched and, and drawn. As you said, they're the interplay between David and uh, Charlize Theron's figures. is very, very interesting. She seems to be very cold, very much the queen bitch on board. But I suspect that may change and she may solve it through the film. Uh, and and Fassbender has, interestingly, not gone down the C-3PO route. I mean, his his David is quite fastidious, but he's not particularly camp in any way. And oh, uh, we're going to see, uh, indeed, I think we're going to see some hidden agendas from him as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pumped for this movie. It is uh, amazingly, given that we have The Dark Knight Rises and The Avengers coming out, it is up there uh, with my most anticipated films of the summer. Hell yes. Hell yes, indeed. Uh, James... What do you got for us? Yes, the sort of most non-news news of the week was that Gary Ross is now officially off Catching Fire, the uh, the Hunger Games sequel. Uh, this has been brewing for some time, uh, a sort of willy-won'ty kind of thing, and he did in fact jump ship. Obviously, they've cited scheduling issues. Obviously, they're going to want to turn the sequel around very quickly, mm-hmm. uh, and he may well have taken issue with that. But do we do we really believe that, or do we think it was very much a case of uh, I've made you all this money, can I have more money? No, I can't. I'll see you later. A good fellas code comes to mind, but Ali would have to get ready for his beeping machine. Um, <laughs> but yes, I, well, we can't, we can't say for we sure. Can't. Yeah, we, but it, it, it's, it feels yeah. it's a Catherine Hardwick situation, isn't it? Really, it but feels then, a bit like I mean, there was a, in, in the Catherine Hardwick case as well. There was a, a very you know clear case of a very short schedule, and and so you know the, if that's mm. the reason, it, it does have a certain amount of weight behind it. True. I mean, in both cases, they're trying to get the sequel in cinemas within about a year, and mm. that's a very very short but time. Scheduling difficulty sounds a lot like creative differences. I thought he did a pretty good job. Uh, there yeah, were some, there were complaints about the shaky cam. Quite a few people have, mm. that I've seen on the internet have been complaining about that. Um, complaining otherwise, otherwise, on the internet? Surely I know, not. I <laughs> otherwise, I thought it was pretty decently directed. Yeah, so did I. I think he did a really good job with it. I mean, it's a bit of a shame. I mean, there's an argument that the Twilight films did sort of take a bit of a, a, a quality dip after mm-hmm. the first one. Um, but the it, Harry Potter films... Did not. No, they didn't. They didn't. The thing is, I I think it's quite difficult. I mean, The Hunger Games is the best of the three books, and the quality of the subsequent books. I mean, it's different because it's essentially the same. I, you know what? We're going to stray into spoilers territory, but well, the vague structure of Talk the stories yeah. is similar in all three books. Okay, yes. but it's not as compelling because you've kind of you've you've been down that sort of narrative journey before. Um, weirdly, I think the second one is slightly 
uh, it's not as good. The third one, I think, is one where they're going to have real problems. So they're going to need to bring in someone really solid for the third one. Yeah, the, uh, the second one, without, again, getting too much into spoiler territories, there's kind of a reason why the structure of the first film is repeat, or yeah. the story is repeated quite okay. closely. Um, although there are some new twists and they do raise the stakes and therefore it, it pretty much works. The third book she tries to kind of escalate it again but the the rationale for having the yeah. same structure doesn't work it feels quite as completely well. contrived well yeah i was trying to be nice yeah. But yeah no it really does i mean the second one is it's just it's not fresh anymore whereas the third one it feels very forced that said you know it's still a decent book yeah. I, you know still made it through. Do the tracker jackers come back <laughs> spoiler <laughs> we couldn't possibly say but yes uh, there are indeed tracker jackers. i presume there's some I sort like of hip it. band Yes, yes. Okay, do the cool. soundtrack for the I love second those and guys. third films. Uh, so, who do we think might step into Gary Ross's shoes? Any ideas? Chris White's. Chris White's <laughs> followed swiftly by David Slade. Indeed. <laughs> and then, because they'll probably inevitably split the last book into possibly three or four films, uh, Bill Condon. So, how big is the last book? Is it splittable? No, they're, they're I more don't or see less how it same. is. There's been there's been talk that they might, but I think that's only because it's become. Almost traditional. Yeah, it's just eking it out, isn't recently. it? It's just it doesn't need to be. They're not no. you know weighty tomes like the Harry Potter books are. Okay. okay. Uh, I, mean, yes, I, I mean, Twilight Wise, Breaking Dawn is a big, huge. I mean, it's a big book, isn't it? It's it's quite long. Filled I mean, with as, not enough plot. I was about to say because Breaking Dawn Part One, literally nothing happens throughout the entire film. <laughs> <laughs> You're, it's it's a, all of the action is just backloaded to the. Curveball! I was going to hear the Twihard. Oh God! Sorry. Sorry. No, it was great and, and sparkly and lovely. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, any ideas? Because they'll they'll want to fill this uh, this slot very very quickly one day. Edgar Wright proposed on Twitter yesterday that all the uh, potential directors get into an arena and battle to the death. <laughs> which I quite That's, That's awesome, idea. and that would be make a great spin-off film. It would. It would do, but it'd be a lot of dead directors. <laughs> okay, maybe we should handpick the directors that go in. In that case, what are Fonzo. you saying here, Helen? Nothing. Okay. Any any names you want to put no, forward? No, definitely not. Okay. <laughs> do you think that means that uh, you know? Um, do you think that means maybe Edgar's on a short list? Was he or was he just being facetious? I think he was joking. I think yes. he's busy enough. He's, hasn't he got about six films? He certainly has. He's writing uh, World's End with Simon Pegg, as we know, and working on Ant Man and tons of other stuff as well. But mm. you never know. I mean, I know he's turned down big stuff in the past, but if they came to him with this. Who knows, Edgar? If you're listening, do do write in and tell us all your secrets, please. Uh, any other, any other, any more for any more? As the inferior might say, Alfonso Cuarón. Why not Alfonso Cuarón? Yeah. Well, he. I think he it might be the best Harry Potter. Film. I know, but I th- I think he's moved on in a way. I think this material might be not not to offend Hunger Games fans, but I think artistically it might be a little bit beneath him now. Yeah, mm. you may have a point. Will they get darker think, and more intense? Uh, with to be honest, storm? I think the, the main re- main problem with him is that he's still busy with gravity, and yeah. uh, they they're going to want to move on this. We're all quickly. busy with gravity, Helen. Keeps yes, <laughs> I suppose that's true. Um, however, in his particular case, he's probably busy with the movie. Gravity. Oh, the movie Gravity. Yeah, yeah so yeah. that's very good. Yeah, I have an idea. Yep, Gareth Evans. Gareth Evans. Mm. The Raids. Gareth Evans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what? But yeah, that means that he wouldn't make the Raid sequel, Berendal, which is going to start shooting in September, and he's promised me a cameo. So, <laughs> all <right. laughs> by all means, don't do that. It might be a bit too violent, anyway. Yeah, but it, it, it is interesting. I mean, it's it's. Um, Yes, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Hunger Games 2, directed by the guy who did the raid. There'd be limbs flying everywhere, it'd be amazing. But this, this is a movie that's very much going to be uh, an appeal for a director who, like Alfonso Cuaron a few years ago, mm. is trying to get onto that A-list. Trying to get onto the, 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 the plateau where he can say, I want to make Gravity, which is a film that starts with a 17-minute tracking shot and is basically composed with something like 100 shots in the entire film, mm. uh, we learned recently. Uh, 
and normally wouldn't be able to do that unless he has that massive hit behind him. Or like I say, Guillermo or Del Toro or, or whoever it is. I think, yeah, I think it's going to be uh, somebody who has made some good films on a probably smaller scale. Um, and yeah, this is this is the one to, this is the kind of their shot at the big time. But it has to be somebody who is also A, ready to go um, and B, you know, probably the, the studio is going to try and keep the budget down. Um, but I mean, the first film made, it, it's already made very nearly half a billion dollars mm-hmm. uh, worldwide. Uh, generally speaking, the sequel makes more than the original, you know, uh, unless it's somebody really incompetent. It, this is going to be a huge, huge film and they're going to want some really sturdy, steady hands on the, on the helm. Mm. But sturdy is probably the right word. Is, is it a bit like they just want a safe pair of hands? They don't want somebody who's going to come in and, and demand... I think to make this one work, I mean, as with the first film, you need someone who can kind of get across the sense of the novel as well. So it, it can't just be a complete journeyman. It has to be somebody who has a little bit of, of feel for what's going on. I, I don't think they're going to, you know, throw it to, to somebody who isn't very creative. I would hope they're not going to anyway, because you've still got to get across the fact that this is very much Katniss's journey. Uh, a lot of the, I think the problem for me a little tiny bit with the first film was it, it has a really hard job to do in getting across her point of view and how much of uh, a complete kick in the belly getting selected for these games is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it pretty much managed that, but it's it's so internalised in the book, it's really hard to get that across. So you have to have somebody pretty talented to do that. I'd love to see, uh, this just literally popped into my head, but uh, Frank Darabont might be interesting for this one. Yeah. He's never really done a movie in this size. And I know he's quite disillusioned with, with Hollywood and all the the wham-bam explosion side of things, but uh, he was attached, I think he still has the rights actually to Stephen King's, uh, or Richard, Richard Bachman's, uh, who is Stephen King, spoiler, um, uh, The Long Walk, which is a fantastic book, uh, very similar to The Hunger Games in many, many ways. Um, and who knows, he might see enough similarities in that. I, I Personally, I think he he needs to work more. Okay, before we get on to the week's reviews, we recently paid a visit by the wonderful Mike Newell, the director of Four Weddings and a Funeral, Donnie Brasco, and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Funnily enough, Mike is, of all things, promoting a movie he didn't make. Interesting. Until you realise, of course, that the said movie is Jean Renoir's La Grande Illusion, which is now in re-release in cinemas and about to come out on lovely Blu-ray, and it is absolutely fantastic. Now, Phil Descendian and I chatted to Mike about pretty much anything and everything for a full hour, here are some of the highlights. We're always uh, delighted to have guests in the Empire Pod booth, and I'm delighted to have Mike Newell, the director of Donnie Brasco for Weddings and the Funeral, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. He's in today. He's uh, in in post-production on your on this new film, Great Expectations, but we're not here to talk about that specifically. We're here to talk about a film you didn't make, Mike. Excellent. <laughs> which is Jean uh, Renoir's La Grande Illusion, which has uh, just been re-released in uh, a new pristine print. Yeah. But this is your favourite film of all time, isn't it? Yes, it is. I uh, it, it was a very energetic uh, introduction to kind of adult life. My father took me uh, to it when it was playing in 1958, which must have been the first time that the rescued print was ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, it played very, very briefly in France just before the war. The Nazis hated it <laughs> and impounded it and took it all to Berlin, every print, and... The only halfway authentic print was discovered sometime in the late 40s in Moscow. So they must have taken it from, when they took Berlin, the Russians must have taken it from Berlin to Moscow. And that's where it was found and then painstakingly reconstructed because as well as everything else, the Germans went through it and they cut great chunks out of it. Um, It was loathed in France when it was first 
th th there was a kind of intermediate print where where bits of it were were okay. You could make sense of the story, and that was released in France in don't remember late forties, fifty mm. something like that. But it was absolutely hated then because it showed. Uh, a, a, an emotional sexual relationship between a French woman and um, a, a French man and yeah. a German woman, mm -hmm. and of course the French had just recently been cutting women's hair hair off and tarring and feathering them and whatnot for having relations with the Germans. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, a, I suppose, in the end, it's sort of a we should not be fighting one another mm -hmm. uh, story. Um, and uh, the French, of course, had had a very uh, ambiguous and checkered uh, relationship with the Germans during the war. And I don't think that that was a message that anybody wanted at all. <laughs> um, plus, there was also this, this long, um, deep um, vibration of, of communism or popular front and all of that kind of stuff just underneath the surface. And that wasn't um, mm. popular at the time. So it got a very short shrift. And then it was re reissued in 1958 when I was 15 or 16 and my dad who loved all things French um, said we got to come and uh, we've got to look at this and so we went to the Academy on Oxford Street which for a certain generation is a very famous mm. um, cinema mm -hmm. um, and it was the, the big art house in, in central London and we saw this thing and we saw it with a newsreel um, there were cinema newsreels then, in which the first or the second Aldermaston march was the big story. So you saw the banners and people walking from Berkshire into Trafalgar yes. Square and all that kind of stuff. And that seemed to me at 16 un Im unimaginably cool. And so me and all my friends uh, got together and we all went the next year and the next year and the next year after that and it became the kind of uh, it was a pop festival and there was La Grande Illusion um, which had the same sort of, of message don't you know you shouldn't be fighting one another yeah. and the fantastic <laughs> thing about this, the, the story was that it was full of people jumping over what you thought the boundaries were you thought the, 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 the British and the French hated the Germans. Not true. The, mm. One of the great relationships in, in the, the film is between a Frenchman and a, and a German. It's one of the most complicated and wonderful things between these two aristocrats, French um, Frenchman called de Boisdieu and um, uh, Raufenstein, who is the apparently the sort of bull-necked um, uh, rigid uh, Prussian that we all think we know and played by von Stroheim and it's not at mm. all it's a wonderful relationship so all of these things were getting turned over in my 16 year old uh, <laughs> mind and of course at that age you will tend towards um, well I, I, I was was sort of as much a lefty as my 16 year old son <laughs> is now <laughs> Um, and so it really hit the mark. So that's where it came from, and it was uh, it, it was a great kind of plugging in all round. It was me and my first sort of tiptoes into, you know, what, what do you think politically? Mm. It was an immensely emotional experience. It was my beloved father who always used to take me on these wonderful sort of culture trips, and um, everything all came together at once. Fantastic, and the the origins of the movie are very, very interesting because not only was uh, Jean Renoir uh, involved in World War One, this film came out two years before World War Two, 
and it is, as you said, it's very much an anti-war film. I mean, there's that great line towards the end, uh, if we get back to fighting the war, I'm paraphrasing here, but if we get back to fighting this war, let's make sure it's the last one. Uh, so, but do you remember what the what the, the what the next line is? I can't remember next the next line that that's Jean Gabin, the mm-hmm. leading actor in the mm-hmm. film, who plays this working class guy who's become an officer and now is a flyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and his great great pal is um, uh, a Jew called uh, Rosenthal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a conversation between that's right, yeah. um, uh, Gabin and. Um, um, uh, Marcel Dalio, who plays uh, Rosenthal, and Rosenthal at that point says, "Ha, huh, some hopes." <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And so you know, the, the, we must not. And the kind of you know, the great uh, impassioned cry. And the realist says, "Don't hold your breath." Yeah, absolutely. There's been this thing going on right the way through the movie about jumping over, um, jumping over boundaries, so that one of the great friendships in the film is between the, the German aristocrat and the, mm. the, the French aristocrat and there's the most wonderful scene where they converse in three languages they yes. converse in French, German and English and they find that they have all the same friends they even went out with the same girls before <laughs> before the war and so the division between people is absolutely meaningless yeah. um, and that's something that the film very strongly uh, believes so you've got the, you've got Gavin, who can't speak German, who falls in love with a French farmer's wife while he's on the run uh, from prison camp. Uh, they can't they can't talk to one another, um, but the emotion holds them together. He just you know he knows her and she knows him, and there's this great thing where all he can say in German is. L- Lottie has blue eyes. Lottie has blue augen. Uh, and um, Lottie is the farmer's wife's little girl. Mm. All the men are dead. Yeah. All the men are dead. Um, she says at one point, the kitchen's empty now, and there's this great big table with, with chairs uh, around mm. it, which are always empty. Mm. And she points to their photographs on the wall, and she says, Tannenberg, uh, Verdun, da, 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 all our greatest victories. And these, these, her husband and his three brothers have all been killed yeah. at the Germans' greatest victories. And all she can ever say to him is, the coffee's ready. But it doesn't matter. Yeah, because they are they're human beings and they reach across. And at the very end, these two guys, um, Rosenthal and uh, Marischal, the the the, um, the Jean Gabin uh, character, they get across the border. And somebody says, "Well, you wouldn't know there was a border there. Yeah, it's just a field." Yeah. Mm. Um, and somebody else, I can't remember who it is, says nature Rosenthal, takes no yeah. no account of border, uh, no, no account of, of human divisions. That's yeah. right. There's a similar bit of dialogue in um, All Quiet on the Western Front. Is the Lewis Marston when they're right. talking about right. why countries go to war, uh-huh. and is it like one mountain has offended another mountain? Right. And <laughs> the, the absurdity of it is is something I think that you know both those filmmakers were united by, and it's probably something that that keeps the film current pertinent now yes. the idea of yes. the grand illusion that war that war has any kind of great purpose yes mm. i'm sure that's absolutely that's absolutely right and what you see i mean it is a happy ending because what you see is these two tiny little black figures yes uh, walking across this huge pristine snowfield uh, it, it, and it's kind of gorgeous and he made another one after the second war almost the last film he made i think which was uh, again about uh, an escaping prisoner of war 
called the the vanishing corporal and mm -hmm. and this guy escapes and escapes and escapes he's he's obsessive about escaping and the end of that movie which happens in he gets back to paris in late 1944 just be no no it's before uh, Paris is still under German occupation, but he, anyway, he gets he, he gets back, um, and he gets back with a friend as well. It's it's a a, a match to um, to La Grande Illusion, but there they are in the middle of Paris, and rather than going forward into the future shoulder to shoulder as they do in in uh, Grande Illusion, they get to uh, a, a parting of the ways, and without either a backward glance or a word between them, and these have been great great. Um, comrades they simply part and walk their, their separate ways mm. and that's a really black ending mm. yeah. and that's the difference between one war and the other I suppose interestingly I read um, uh, I don't know how true this is you're Le Grand Delusion historian so perhaps you, you can correct me but um, um, I believe in an early draft of the script uh, Renoir had a conversation between Marischal and Rosenthal about how they would meet up at the end of the war and then apparently at the end of the film they were going to show this meeting of uh, the, all the different oh, comrades really? but there were two empty chairs and Marischal and Rosenthal didn't make it so do you think that, that well, indicates no, 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 that absolutely would make sense because yeah. one of the things that they say in that exchange that we were just talking about mm -hmm. which is we must fight so that we must go back to our units and fight so mm -hmm. that this never happens again yeah um, and as, as we were talking, with, um, uh, Rosenthal says you're, you're, you're loopy. That's just uh, <laughs> daft. Yeah. Um, they do then speculate about um, if we get through, if we yeah. get through. if we get through. Yeah. Hence the um, hence the idea of the maybe not being such a happy ending because they've escaped, well, but they have to go back to, to go it's back it's nineteen sixteen. Verdun is just you That's know right. is rumbling on and and uh, it's carnage, it's slaughter, yeah. and this is the logic of the film almost that it's counterintuitive. Now, if you want to hear more, we can assure you that you will, because there are cracking anecdotes aplenty about Prince of Persia, Johnny Depp and Al Pacino, and Hugh Grant, then the interview will soon be up as a separate podcast in full. You can't say further than that, and The Grand Illusion is out now. Okay, it's competition time. Last week offered you the chance to win three copies of Dreamhouse, the Daniel Craig, Rachel Feist scary film. The winners were Shane Bayliss, Kieran Bambrick and Josh Searle, who all correctly said that the football team Daniel Craig supports is my own beloved Liverpool FC. Frankly, we could do with a bit of Bond right now. Uh, this week's competition offers you the chance to win bugger all because we don't have one. Sorry about that. Competition time will be back next week in all its wonderful glory. Before we move on to the week's reviews, Drew Goddard, the writer of Cloverfield, makes his directorial debut this week with the eagerly awaited and long-shelved, through no fault of its own, The Cabin in the Woods. Co-written by Joss Whedon, it's a twisty, turny, mind-bendy thing, and when Drew popped into the pod booth recently, Phil, Nick and Ali couldn't resist a chance to dig a little deeper. Uh, just a, a pretty simple question, and first, where did this crazy idea come from? You know, it was originally uh, Joss Whedon, who I co-wrote this movie with and who produced it. it. He he had this original idea, but we had just been talking about horror movies and what we love about them and, and what we wanted to do. And he sort of had this basic construct. And when I heard it, I, I thought, oh, that sounds great, because that's going to give us a chance to do everything we've ever wanted to do in one horror movie. And without getting into spoilers, there's quite a few horror films you can kind of see mixed in there. Evil Dead, obviously, Certainly. being one of you, a huge Evil Dead. Yeah, I mean, I'm, look, I'm a child of the '80s, so I, I was, I was, 
bred on uh, John Carpenter and Sam Raimi, those two guys. I mean, this this movie certainly stands on the shoulders of many giants, but none more so than those two. Have you shown the movie to Sam Raimi or, or Bruce Campbell yet? I have not. I have not, but I would love to. That would be fun. Do you feel that when you're writing with Joss that you, you work best together, or is it is it something that you kind of go, well, I've done this so often, this is like putting on an old pair of shoes? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, we start, because we started at Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because I sort of came to it as a fan, you mm. know, I, he, there was no writer I respected more than Joss Whedon, and I, I, I you know, look, I, I loved him so much, I weaseled my way in and, <laughs> and got a job working for him, so it's a... Uh, it, it, it's been good because because I I do hold him in such high esteem, and we just developed a, a working relationship over the years that that works really well for both of us. It, it never feels like we're working; it always feels like we're just having a, a good time. Could you tell us a little bit about how it's taken so long to get to the cinema? Because a lot of fans of Joss Whedon and yourself have been waiting a long while to see this film. Right? Yeah, we were, uh, the studio that made cabin went bankrupt they got caught in sort of the financial crisis that hit you know all of us really in the world uh but they they took it uh, particularly hard and it delayed a lot of other films it delayed the hobbit and it delayed uh james bond that's why those films are taking a little longer to come out as well but you know what it's one of those things that's it's we joke but it's it's worked out the best it's the best possible thing that could have happened to us because the new studio Lionsgate that saw the movie loved it and as couldn't be more supportive our actors have become stars <laughs> you know yeah. it's uh Joss and I joke but it really was it, it was the best thing that could have happened to us so be careful what you worry about do you get fanatics <laughs> sort of standing on your lawn tapping their watches <laughs> a little bit you know you oh, do yes, look yes. no one wants it to come out more than me so yeah. but you know it, it's actually it's worked out it's worked out fine I mean, it always helps to have a god on board. That's right. It's right. When you have a thunder, the god of thunder in your corner, things seem to go your way. And plus Joss doing the whole Avengers thing. This, you know. It, it, look, it's, it, I'm, I'm not complaining. It has definitely worked out. Anyway, back to casting. Joss came up with the idea. You read it together. Did you have people in mind when you were creating the roles? Was Bradley... Certainly, yeah. This, uh, we, we, we wrote the roles for Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins. And, uh, every, you know, with regard to the kids, we were definitely looking for new, fresh faces, which is ironic now that they've become such stars. But that was the goal. I'm curious. Uh, there's a fantastic creepy redneck in the movie. <laughs> Can you talk about finding? Where do you go to to find? Is there a special casting agency? <laughs> no, you know, it's a the normal casting agency. But, boy, that was a fun audition day because <laughs> you get to see sort of all the... Uh, all the great character actors in Hollywood come in and at their most off-putting. I, I imagine these people you don't want to upset necessarily. Right? Yeah. No. You. Were, I was definitely on eggshells that day. I'm like, hey, whatever you say, sir. Whatever you say. Was anyone too good? You just had to maybe. <laughs> I mean, the it's guy, you know, Tim Desarn, who we cast in the movie, it was the best by far, and it was because we were all a little unsettled by him, for sure. I suppose my, my other question would be. It's no secret there's, you know, a secret about this film. There is there is stuff we can't talk about here today. Has this made talking about it to us and other journalists a little bit difficult or actually just a bit of fun? Yeah, I mean, the truth is with Cabin, there's, there's not any one secret. It's more a cumulative uh, set of secrets. Mm. You know, it's more about the, the experience... And, and and the escalation of the movie. Um, and so in a weird way, it's not like, you know, the crying game where it's like, if you know this one thing, it's going to ruin the whole movie. Sure. Yeah. But we, we do try to just protect 
the experience for, for people. So that's that's what it makes it a little difficult. But as a filmmaker, you want people to understand that, you know, look, this movie is at its best. The less you know, the less you know about this movie, the more fun you're going to have. And and but that's a hard thing, you know, to say, trust me on, you know, because I'm sure mm-hmm. all filmmakers would say that. So you do want to give the audience enough to know, oh, this is worth your time. And you guys came up with a really great enigmatic poster. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, I don't the, know quite how to describe it. Yeah, the, the Lionsgate marketing department was spectacular. They sh- they showed us that, and we just immediately went, "Oh, good, that's it. You get you get it." <laughs> Were there any other ideas kicking around? Oh but? my god, there's like thirty posters that are all great. Like the, it's so much fun. I hope maybe you know they come out. And you can use these things because there's some there's some po- posters we didn't use just because they spoil the movie, but they may make great DVD covers because you know you can you can have there's a lot of stuff in this movie that you can have fun with but we just didn't want to spoil everything save it for the collector's edition exactly exactly this is maybe a side maybe a slight question to ask but it's called cabin in the woods and people already have this kind of set of expectations when you hear the phrase cabin in the woods right was that always the title yeah that was always the title uh Though it was funny, we <laughs> when we test screened the film, we would get funny because one of the questions they ask is, "Is do you like this title?" Uh, and we we tested it, and one person their response was, "No, no, this should not be the title. The title of this movie should be You Never Know' with an exclamation point after it." <laughs> and I was like, "I don't think that's a good title. I'm going to go stick with the title I have." That sounds like it's a musical. Fun. I know, right? I was like, "That's a strange title for this movie." But no, I mean, we we very much wanted to to conjure those feelings of, of familiarity. We are, we first and foremost, we love this genre. First and foremost, we want this to feel like, oh, you. we want the audience to feel like they know this type of movie so that then we can pull the rug out. You know, you want to honor what came before. And, and so Cabin had that sort of classic feel to us. And as a horror fan, do you have a, a favorite horror film? I mean, I, there's a lot. Certainly, but I, if I had to pick one, it would be the thing, John Carpenter's mm. thing, because uh, it's 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 gorgeous, and it, I mean, it is it is a, a flawless movie. Is there a correlation between how much you enjoy a horror movie and how scary it is? Is there? Do you have a scariest horror film that you've ever? Yeah, I mean, I, to, to answer your first question, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, certainly there's horror movies that are not particularly scary that I love mm. you know and there's certainly more uh, horror movies that terrify me that I didn't really enjoy yeah. so it's not just about being scared I mean I like being scared but there, it's it's more about the movie itself um, uh, the movie I liked it, uh, The Descent uh, mm. scared the hell out of me <laughs> yeah. particularly before even things went bad before when they were just getting stuck in holes and the claustrophobia of that movie really I thought I was going to have to leave the theater and that was one I loved I really loved that movie I thought that was good and I remember just sort of the visceral fear that I felt watching that thing yeah um, so for you this like uh, the process from screenwriter to director is that do you, is that direction you sort of want to continue in do you have other ideas that you're kind of working on currently absolutely absolutely you know it's been fun um, and it's been nice because I, I started my career working on shows that that were very empowering to the writer and and you know certainly Joss and JJ Abrams they sort of set that tone where you know the writers in charge and yeah. and so it, it definitely didn't feel like that big a leap to make between this because of the shows I had worked on where we had done this sort of thing and so it just feels like the natural progression of my career and one I I look forward to continuing yeah I've got to say, I read Robopocalypse oh, yeah. last year and loved it. Oh, the, and it uh, felt immediately very cinematic. Definitely. And I know that it was something that DreamWorks kind of before it even been published. Yes, they were very aggressive. When I when I first met on it, they only only two chapters had been written. 
wow. you had bought it before. Well, you, yeah, but I thought <laughs> it was incredible. <laughs> it's definitely a it's a unique experience, that's for sure. <laughs> Do you have ideas for how you wanted the book to finish? Yeah, I mean, we you know we Daniel Wilson who wrote the book, uh, great writer. He was very much having a conversation with us, keeping us informed as to what he was doing as we were working on it. And it was a very it was a very easy experience. Yeah. So I mean, knowing that Spielberg. Is going to be involved. Right. Or is going to be involved and in, and in, in directing it. Did, did that, does that affect the way that you approach the well, material, even subconsciously? Are you thinking about those sort of big Spielberg beats potentially? Because the book seems to be very full of them. Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, you definitely, you definitely know you don't have to limit your thinking because <laughs> if you can imagine it, Stephen can put it on screen. You know, so you know, unlike anything uh, working on anything else where you you try to be conscious of. Well, that's going to be impossible to do. You know that this man can do the impossible, and yeah. it makes it fun. It makes it fun to say, "Okay, let's just try anything." Yeah, I'd be racked with nerves, but you seem oh. to be loving it. I no, believe me, the first meeting, absolutely <laughs> terrified, <laughs> absolutely terrified to walk in that room and talk to Steven. But that's that's what made it so nice is that he's just the best version of Steven Spielberg that you would hope for. You like, he's really just just <laughs> wonderful, and in, in his enthusiasm, just is is you know intoxicating like it's really it's it's nice when you meet your idols and they they outlive or outdo your expectations have you started to get a bit paranoid about technology <laughs> a little bit i mean i'm already paranoid <laughs> by technology so like certainly working on hard science uh, uh horror tales like robopocalypse have not helped things because the writer was a, he's a ro robotics engineer isn't he yes originally yeah so did he, you have to go and start kind of trying to build things or, or do that kind of <laughs> well luckily yeah, he had you know he's such a great resource because he knows inside and out the world of robots yeah. so you know we used him all the time Now here's the thing, Cabin in the Woods is one of those films that's incredibly hard to talk about. It has so many twists and turns and hilarious conceits that it's almost impossible to talk to Drew Goddard without giving the game away about anything. So we decided to stop laughing for Game of Soldiers and we talked to him about the film's specific content, including spoilery third act stuff. So in an Empire podcast first, today we'll also see a very special Cabin in the Woods spoiler interview podcast featuring that Drew Goddard interview in full. It will be available separately, obviously, but be warned... Do not listen to it until you've seen Cabin in the Woods. Anyway, <clears throat> so Cabin in the Woods is almost impossible to talk about then, so it's a good thing we're kicking off our review section with it, isn't it, Helen? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, and, uh, I mean, I like this very much um, as, a, as a, something of a, a Whedonite, mm -hmm. uh, if you will, and a fictionado of, of Buffy, Angel, uh, Firefly, and all the rest. Um, I was kind of disposed to be interested in it. But but it's, it's a really nice... Um, different twist on the horror movie so on one hand you have the very standard story of five gorgeous young people going to a cabin in the woods the jock um, the geek the exactly mathlete yeah all that sort of stuff yeah hot girl you hot know. girl yeah um they all head off uh, to a cabin in the woods but and, and this isn't a spoiler i think anymore given the tv spots that people have seen and given uh, the fact that it happens in the first five minutes of the film absolutely we also see some office people going about their business and discussing this trip and discussing this journey that these kids are on as if they've kind of engineered it and it all becomes a little bit different mm. at that point on. That's probably as much as we can say. And this film has divided opinion a lot of people think it's the second coming of Horror Jesus. Um, some people think <laughs> that it is a case of the Ember's New Clothes and it has a lot of fresh and fun conceits but they may have kind of been done before in a strange way. Well I think this one is 
intentionally riffing on films that have been done before and, and very you know doing it in a very self-aware way in the way that say something like Scream did you know it's riffing on loads and loads of horror conceits and loads and loads of tropes that we expect to see in these films um, but it's doing it in a self-aware way so that's kind of okay really um, I don't think it's going to necessarily start a new horror wave in the way that Scream did. I don't think it's it's going to have a load of copycats. And if, I, if it does, I think most of them are probably going to be quite dreadful because I think it is something that you can easily repeat without actively ripping this off. Godard and Whedon are very, very smart guys. Yes, and they, they, know, they, they know the genre inside out. And so mm. whenever they go in those, those different directions that we can't talk about, which is really frustrating, <laughs> because they know their stuff, you're in safe hands. But lesser people... Mm. might mess it up. Yes, I think so. So I, 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 I don't think it's the start of something new. I think it's probably an oddity or a, a cult hit in itself. Um, but as such, you know, it's really entertaining. It is one of those films I really want to see again, just to see little things I missed a uh, second time around. I really liked it. One of my favourite things was that it has one of cinema's creepiest rednecks. Um, <laughs> we asked Drew about and gave a very funny answer about how he found this guy. Um, but yeah, it, it just has fun riffing on all those, you know, kids going into the forest for a creepy campy trip all, all that stuff mm. it's really entertaining absolutely and uh, I'm going to be treading very carefully around this one but I, it brings it together with a very very a nice larger conceit a larger mm. concept which I, I found very satisfying as a horror fan it, it felt like one of those kind of Buffy season finales where something very unexpected happens and it all comes together in a way that you didn't see coming um, without yeah. saying much more if it, it, at times it does feel like Buffy with a budget <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but it's well uh, for uh, the, the second Chris Hemsworth Joss Whedon collaboration this summer, I guess. I know. The Avengers. Avengers. Uh, sorry, uh, Marvel's Avengers Assemble. Uh, and uh, Empire gave a three stars, which is a recommendation. It's a very, very fun film, so do go and check it out. Uh, next up is a film that's already out. It opened on Wednesday. It is, of course, Battleship. Not Battleship, but Battleship. It's directed by Peter Berg. It stars Tanner Kitch as a maverick Navy lieutenant who finds himself forced to defend the world when a small squadron of alien ships arrive on Earth during military manoeuvres and start trying to sink his battleship. Nick, you wrote the official Empire Review, so let's start with you. What are your thoughts? It's not particularly good. Um, oh. It's another alien invasion movie with loads of CG and lots of fighting and explosions and stuff like that. Uh, this time it involves the US Navy, so the tagline could have been, this time it's water. <laughs> um, and it's just... You know, bloated, bombastic. The problem is, the main problem is that it feels like an advert for the US Navy. Mm. And it just kind of bangs the drum. Um, I don't want to get into spoilers, but there's stuff in the third act that is just utterly ridiculous if it's meant to be taken seriously. Mm. It's a bit unclear. I think it is meant to be taken seriously. But, um, well, this is the thing. There's, there's, uh, there are moments towards the end of this film where I thought, is Peter Berg doing a Verhoeven here? Is he actually satirizing the blockbuster genre? And then sadly, when he came into the, uh, the podcast last week, he seemed to say that he was taking it all very, very seriously. That it was very much a tribute to the navy, and uh, you know, and so, yeah, he wasn't. And in that case, it's dreadful. If it, if it is a satire, <laughs> it's genius. One but of the confusing things is the aliens don't seem that bad. They kind of get, almost get fired on first. Yeah, and uh, it's really unclear what they're up to. There aren't many of them. It's kind of a scouting expedition yes. of aliens. It's five ships. Don't really know what they're doing, but the navy respond as if. Curiously, they don't seem to want to kill any humans. Isn't, isn't the subtext of this film not science bad, military good? It is. 
Yeah, that's a little bit worrying that the, the one scientific uh, science character is a, a snivelling coward mm-hmm. and anyone even remotely connected with the Navy is is wonderful. And, you know, not to do down the men in uniform, I'm sure they are terribly brave and wonderful, but at the same time it would have been nice to feel that it was a little bit more balanced, basically, at the end of the day. Mm, absolutely. Uh, I just thought it was slightly bland, to be honest, and uh, almost formless, as if, almost as if... They had somehow to base this on a board game that had no plot or characters <laughs> to speak of. I think the real problem is the script. The script is really bad. Is this bad. strictly because no one at any point says, you have sunk my battleship? <laughs> is well, that a spoiler? There is a sequence where they play battleship. <laughs> Essentially, yes. I actually I have to say I kind of enjoyed that sequence because at least that seemed kind of witty almost. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tongue in cheek. The script is so stupid at times. After about 20 or 30 minutes of stuff blowing up and aliens attacking them, Taylor Kitsch goes, I've got a bad feeling about this. And there's another <laughs> line where someone's shouting, I didn't sign up for this bullshit, which is a line from Transformers 3. And it's just generic, cheesy, yeah. not funny. It's interesting you mentioned Transformers there, because even though the, the sequels, the two Transformers sequels, are quite insidious in a way, the action sequences are phenomenal. And mm. this feels very much like a Transformers knockoff, which is, which is sad, because Peter Berg is a very, very good director. And let's not forget that this man is a Michael Mann protege. He directed The Kingdom with Michael Mann. Michael Mann cameos in Hancock, for example, which Michael Mann was going to direct at one point. And it just Friday seems, Night Lights. Great. Friday Night Lights, of course. Uh, the Welcome to the Jungle. I mean, these are all good films and they're all varying films. And in a way, he was like almost like a Ron Howard jumping around from genre to genre. And I just feel a little bit disappointed in this. I, I, I was expecting, hoping shall we say for more from him there's moments where he's clearly going for something different I mean you know there's a a kind of funny bit near the start where he's trying to rob a convenience store to get a burrito for a girl he's trying to impress and it's it's kind of cute and if it had come in a better movie it would have and hadn't been ripped off of a YouTube video it was ripped off sure and and, and that whole character arc is kind of the same as J.J. Abrams Star Trek uh, that whole you know young Kirk Mm -hmm. um, thing I think the, the problem is that whatever goodwill you have going in is, is kind of squandered as the film goes on a, a little bit and, and you don't end up coming out of it loving anybody in it. And there's not enough Liam Neeson. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's really he's really disappointing because you want to see him punching an alien and, and yes, shouting. He has a particular set of skills, none of which are on uh, display in this film. No, they seem to be standing on deck and shouting at people. Essentially, that's, that's his special set of skills. And also, it takes these weird detours. It has this dreadful comedy football game. I'm not going to say soccer, even though it's a British term. Um, it has a dreadful comedy football game, which really kind of doesn't really serve any purpose in terms of advancing the plot. It sets up a, a rivalry between Taylor Kitsch and a Japanese officer, but apart from that, it's dreadful. It, it also confirms something that I've long um, considered canon, which is that any American film which features what we call football, what they call soccer, has to feature someone doing a bicycle kick, an overhead bicycle kick. Yes. Now, to the best of my knowledge, and I'm not a football expert, this isn't that common a manoeuvre no, in, 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 you know, in games. But I remember in the movie, for example, She's the Man with Channing Tatum and Amanda Bynes. Who can forget? Who can forget it? He spends the entire film trying to tutor her in this essential style of kicking as if it's really important and you can't be a good soccer player without it um, I'm pretty sure he's now a coach at Liverpool <laughs> I'm sure he that. should be that would be amusing but you know I don't understand why it keeps cropping up in all these films it's like they're trying to make football look exciting yeah. without actually putting any work into making it look exciting absolutely I mean it's not a complete washout battleship there are a couple of nice lines I mean I think the line you talked about where he says I've got a bad feeling about this which is an obvious reference to Star Wars mm. and which you know, or, or indeed Aliens 
is is followed by someone saying, yeah, kind of, we need to get a new planet, bad feeling, which is a decent riposte, I'd say. Uh, re- uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of funny moments. There's an exchange early on. Uh, Taylor Kitsch is in the bar. He goes up to Brooklyn Decker, and the following dialogue happens. What's your name? I'm hungry. That's not your name. <laughs> and I, I wrote that down because that, that blew my mind. So some Hollywood script doctor wrote that, sent off you know, an invoice for $200,000. It is factually accurate. It is indeed factually accurate. Uh, and it, as you say, they fire on the aliens. We don't really know why the aliens are here. It could be for any reason. They could be coming to say hello, and then they get fired upon, and then it and all kicks off. Another of these films that has a post credit sting setting up for the sequel that you just go, oh, it's so, it feels so cynical. Uh, if you stay for the end of the credits, there's a scene in Scotland. I won't say anything else. Ooh, exciting times. Presumably on the Isle of Skye, where Prometheus starts. Oh, it's all circular. Okay, and that is it uh, for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, we will say that Battleship, Nick, you gave two stars to. Yes? I did. Two stars, and that's not a recommendation. We're saying, what, catch it in DVD or not catch it at all? On a plane. On a plane? If it's a long flight. A <laughs> long flight. Okay. Um, next week, Helen will be Hello. in the hot seat while Hello. I cook my pasty white Irish flesh to a crispy off-white. And she and the Potters will be discussing salmon fishing in the Yemen and Lockout, to name but two, while Lockout's Guy Pierce pops in to the pod booth for a chat. And if they don't behave themselves while I'm gone, just holler and I'll hit them right in the F6, F7 and F8. That is a battleship reference. Uh, so all that remains for this week is to say goodbye to Nick. Bye. <laughs> goodbye to James. Happy trails, Hans. <laughs> Very good. Uh, goodbye to Helen. Chucky Arla. Oh, come on now. <laughs> Did you really have to go there? Well, I thought we were so many to the years story. of her. Yeah, tying it back in. Okay. Uh, and we want to remind you all to download the separate podcast featuring Mike Newell and Drew Goddard. Oh, and the new issue of Empire featuring a world exclusive Prometheus feature, our amazing Lethal Weapon reunion, uh, a 10 page celebration of Powell and Pressburger, and the amazing revelation that Eric Cantona's house is very airy is on sale now. If you don't buy it, you're a heathen and a fool. I don't like you very much. And that's it for me. Bye-bye.